What's happening, y'all? This is Connie Morgan with the Free Black Thought Podcast. This is our 15th episode. We made it. There will be just five more in this inaugural season of the FBT Podcast, and we thank y'all for riding with us. I have never done this before. I've never made this kind of plug. But please consider becoming a paid subscriber to our Substack if you've enjoyed the content. No one gets paid at FBT. We are all volunteers who have made this a passion project. When you support us with your dollars, it allows us to do things like hire someone to improve our website or buy me a new microphone. We take those paid subscriberships very seriously and try to use those dollars to benefit you and improve our services. This episode's guest is someone near and dear to our heart. Brandi Shafatinsky is a social worker, writer, researcher, and advocate. She holds a doctorate in education from the University of San Francisco in international and multicultural education. Brandy has worked towards advancing the rights of victims and survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault within the military community through practice, education, and research. Currently, she is working towards developing intercultural and academic opportunities to enhance liberal democratic ideals. She is a great reminder that there is no such thing as a Black perspective, just Black people with perspectives. so much for joining me today. We're very excited to have you on. But before we get into the issues, let's tell the folks listening a little bit about your heterodox journey. I met you through the Jewish Institute of Liberal Values, but I know you've worn many hats as every 21st century woman does. And so I actually don't know a lot about your kind of history and how you got to where you are today. So I'm going to be learning too. Please tell us how you landed where you are and why you're inspired to do the work that you're doing. Hi, thanks, Connie. It's great to be here speaking with you. Um, so which yellow brick road did I follow to get to where I am today? I've spent the majority of my adult life as a Navy wife and um, working with uh, and living with military community is probably the, the best, um, can give you the, a better understanding of how I got to where I am as far as valuing viewpoint diversity. I've had to, of course, work with and for people from all over the country and all over the world who come with a variety of backgrounds and experiences that have informed their points of view and realizing that um, not just obviously, you know, we're all humans and there's a common commonality just in, in inherent humanity itself, but that the, the diversity of, of views come from diverse experiences. And those are things to learn from, not to shy away from. And sometimes they're, th- they're things to challenge. So I, I think just my work as an advocate, military social services, and working and living amongst you know the United States military community, which is arguably the most diverse organization in the world, has informative in, in uh, years of my adulthood have actually really, really um, impacted the way I see things, the way I approach not just work, but but life. And so when did you... When did you decide where your that your career would teeter in this direction? Because when you were a, a military spouse, like w- what were you doing specifically, other than obviously supporting your husband and your family? And then is that different than what you're doing today? How did how did that transformation happen? So slightly, I, I actually was working most most of my professional life. I've worked in social services, so I worked with victims and survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault. And then service members and their families who were experiencing suicidal ideation, um, substance abuse. So just in military family advocacy as a whole. Um, I knew that I wanted to go into something that's more on the prevention side and more program-based as far as building building out programs. So I 
got really interested in in the field of education. And I'd worked in education before, off and on throughout my years, you know, as, as a Navy wife. And I went back to school to study international multicultural education because I got fascinated again with not just the various viewpoints of people that I encountered and, you know, my neighbors and friends, but but where, how those ideas formed and, and what was kind of foundational in that. And the common denominator with a lot of that was education. So I pivoted from social service to education. It's not too big of a pivot, actually. Yeah. Um, but that's how I, how I got interested in, in education as a whole. And specifically in what I'm doing now is uh, hugely based on my experience while I was earning my, my degree in international multicultural education. And so did you, were you making that pivot with the intention of, of being a teacher, being a professor, or, it, or did you want to write education policy? Or what was your initial goal when you were, when you were changing to education? I actually wanted to do, um, I wanted to build and run programs. Um, I knew that I would, I learned very, very quickly um, as a doctoral student that I would not be welcome in the academy because I don't, um, I don't fall in line with, with the, the viewpoints that seem to be quite prevalent there. And that wasn't ever really, really um, a goal for, of mine. I wanted to build programs that would actually increase positively impact and increase intercultural um, communication and experiences. Okay. And then what was the first program that you maybe built or attempted to build or are building? I think, well, still building, working on, and I think that this is kind of a life's work, but expanding on the idea of the classics. So I, I, um, again, was confronted with a lot of people who, who believed that we, that all of the classics should be thrown out because they were written or run or based on straight white men, um, without, and, and, you know, throwing, throwing all of those out without seeing any value or underlying learning lessons that students may gain from those seemed pretty destructive and kind of counterproductive to me. But that being said, that doesn't mean that other classics can't be formed and that we shouldn't look to diversify what's what's viewed as the classics. So right now I'm in the very early stages of building on Black classics, uh, Black American classics uh, predominantly, but looking at literature and art and, and, and science and building that out. What makes for somebody who may not know, because even I, who's, who, I'm in this world and I'm, um, I've this year, I've, I think it was this year, maybe I read it last year, um, Angel Perham and Anika Prather's book about the, the Black intellectual tradition and they're, you know, fighting for the Black American classical tradition. Wonderful book, wonderful people. If you haven't heard of them, folks, you should look them up. Um, in fact, I'll tag, I'll, I'll link to their book in the, in the show notes because that's another great resource on this topic. But, um, you know, even someone like me who's pretty educated and pretty familiar with with the classics, or so I think, I think I'm familiar with the classics, but can you define what that means? Like, how do you know that you're experiencing a classic, whether it's literature or art, and like, how do, how do those things actually get defined and added to the canon? I think a lot of times people look at age and just think something that's old or start, um, and, and to me that while there's value in that, that's not um, the number one thing I'd look at, I look at whether it's been foundational or transformational as far as schools of thought. So I think about the debate between Booker T. Washington and W.B. Du Bois as far as building the Black intellectual and Black American communities, and they had two different ideas on what those first few steps would be. So really dissecting 
not just their points of view, but how they came to those different points of view, and then examining, okay, who whose point of view makes more sense and is more relevant today? And what are kind of the failures or things, maybe unintended consequences of, of, of those points of view? Really looking at what's been foundational in thought, to me, makes a classic. Okay. And so if something comes along, let's say the 1619 Project, and it's not old, but it, it, it does, it has had a huge effect on the culture and the conversation and thought around history and art and all that kind of thing. Because does it, will it, or does it eventually get categorized as a classic, even though I think you and I would say it's a toxic, a toxic work that we wouldn't want our children to be um, educated with, but because it's had that influence, would it, will it eventually be a classic work that will be just, you know, that will be just dissected as part of a classical education? I actually hope so. Because that the you you the word you just used is what's important, where it's dissected. Because the ideas behind it didn't sprout up out of nowhere, even right. as ridiculous as I find them. And I think it's important to to real to learn from what led to that project being created and what led to its adoption in certain circumstances as canon or as historical fact. When in you know we have proof that so many of the things are if not outright lies, very, very misguided. And I think if if um, we fail to dissect that in, in institutions of learning, the, it, it um, increases the possibility that something else like that or worse comes along. Okay, cool, cool. That's, that's kind of what I was thinking as well. But of course, wanted to get your opinion on that, because that's kind of the debate about around critical race theory, right? Is that well, even if you don't agree with critical race theory or um, you think it's toxic or harmful or whatever, it's something that some people say, well, I don't like it, but it should still be in the classroom. It still, should still be taught so people can dissect it, so we can have these debates, so we can have these arguments. And obviously, a lot of the times, the other point of view isn't given in the classroom, right? Children, children are just taught the CRT perspective, and so they're not able to compare and contrast. But when do you think it's kind of age appropriate to... Because I think maybe that's kind of the crux of the debate. Like kindergartners, they can't debate like the merits of CRT, but maybe high school or middle school or not till college. What do you think about that? I I think it's hard to put a definitive red line on this is when it should definitely be in and this is when it should definitely be out. I think that the, the problem that I have with CRT isn't the introduction of the theory as far as teaching what it's about. The issue I have is when it's the only lens to teach all of history through and every experience through. And so, and, and, and regardless of age, I would have a problem with it being the only lens in which students are taught to look at things through. That being said, there, I think the bigger question is kind of when is it appropriate to teach kids certain parts of history that are much more difficult to digest, like issues about race and racism. And when do those conversations come into the classroom? When do they stay out? And I know that, you know, I'm a mom of four. I know you're also also a mom. I think that to assume that a parent shouldn't be a part of that conversation is kind of where a lot of our public school educators and administrators have gone wrong. I mean, a lot of that is parents should be working with teachers and administrators to kind of determine what they feel is appropriate for kids to learn. Okay, that's so that's a good point way to transition and talk about the Coalition for Empowered Education, which you are a part of, uh, a big part of. And 
like how, if a parent is, is wanting to have those conversations and wanting to work with their school district or teachers, their administrators, whatever. And let's say the, the, the school district isn't hostile to that. They're open to it. But this parent's like, I've never, I don't, I'm not an educator. I don't really know what I'm doing. I just know that I don't like what I see or I do like what I see and I want more of it or whatever. How do parents navigate that? Like who I think a lot of them feel overwhelmed and like almost silly walking into a school and saying, hey, I think, I think we should do it this way or we should introduce this topic or whatever. Well, one of the, I mean, one of the first things that, that uh, any parent, any community member can do is contact us, you know, contact someone from the Coalition for Empowered Education to, to get some help, advocacy skills, talking points, and how to actually approach uh, their child's teacher, school board, district administrator. But also to remember, public schools are just that. They're public. These are community organizations that are there to work with communities, and every every parent is part of that. Um, these conversations not only shouldn't be, but they don't have to be hostile and divisive. It should be. It, it shouldn't be that difficult for us to talk together. We're talking about kids and making sure that kids' learning um, and and social socialization skills kind of stay central to this. Not turn not turning public schools into a huge partisan tug of war. Yeah. So the the Coalition for Empowered Education is a resource for parents who are starting, maybe wanting to start you know, becoming advocates or becoming more involved in their children's public school education. What other resources, goals, things is um, is the coalition working on? So we're working on building our coalition out even more. So making sure that community organizations and institutions and community members know um, what we stand for, which is for an open discourse and participation in the education of, of our kids. There, again, has been a lot of partisanship and divisiveness around education and schooling. And, and I think that our organization, our, our coalition, represents the opposite of that, where we're actually looking to engage in dialogue in, that's going to be productive. Um, no one's trying to score political points. We want to make sure that kids are, are entering school safe, learning um, socializing with their friends and that parents and teachers and, edu- and educators, administrators are all working together towards those goals. And so can anybody join the coalition? Do they have to be a parent? Do they have to have a, tie, a direct tie to education? Who who are you looking to, to join? So right now we're working on building the um, organizations that are joining as part of the coalition, but they can, anyone can always contact us. We have a kind of form letter to read through to see if if somebody interested in joining is, is, you know, in agreement with kind of what we're doing and what we're working towards and anyone can, can contact us and ask questions, have a conversation, you know, set up a zoom phone call, whatever, so that we can discuss uh, participation, participation, excuse me, for people who are interested. Right. And that's a good point too, that the, the organization piece. So if you're in an organization or you've, you've started some kind of community organization club, whatever that it aligns, you can join up, you can join the coalition as part of that group. Or like you said, if you're an individual and you're like, I don't have any local support or community, but maybe you want to get something going or, or whatever, then, then you would be a great resource for that. Is it anybody from anywhere in the country? Because I know California is kind of the inspiration or kind of the, I don't know, the, or does it explode event that I think inspired the, the formation of the coalition Am I correct on that? Like California is where you guys are headquartered. 
No, we're actually national. So we're okay. all over the country. We have member organization coalition members from all over all over the United States, um, based out of many different places. And while California's taken a, up a lot of the media bandwidth, we've actually um, formed out of concerns expressed in multiple states about this growing divide between parents and schools. And, you know, kids kind of getting put in the middle of, of that divide. But we've seen it in many places. California, of course, is is kind of at the forefront of that with the um, requirement for ethnic studies and all, all that that's done and how that's impacted schooling and learning. Uh, but we've seen similar uh, concerns and issues that parents and other organizations have raised in multiple states. Montgomery County, Maryland, just recently, you know, a couple months ago was kind of all over the front pages about what was happening there in, in diff- with different schools. Okay. And then what, what is ethnic studies? It's like, it's kind of like, oh gosh, what was the gal's name? Uh, Bethany Mandel, who was asked to, to define critical race theory and she like, couldn't do it. Sometimes I wonder if ethnic studies is one of those things where if it gets thrown around and if you ask people, what is ethnic studies? Like they'd say, studying ethnicities. <laughs> what is what is the definition? That answer, I will give you the definition that we are using. Even though, if you ask some, you know, another person, they may give you a different definition. So, ethnic studies is the is the study of different ethnic groups um, within the United States, their history and experiences. That's it. And and um, what is? I, I think I saw on the website pluralistic ethnic studies is what you would like to see? What does that mean? How how is it different? How do you know if you are experiencing a pluralistic ethnic study curriculum or not? So we do, yes, we we support pluralistic constructive um, ethnic studies, which does not come from a specific ideological lens. So we support the inclusion, like an inclusion, uh, inclusionary based curriculum where stored stories, narratives, experiences, contributions of the multiple peoples that have built and contributed to the, the creation of our country um, are told. So if you think about a black history class, you, you know, I took a black history elective in high school, that would be an ethnic studies course that we hope students take. And we hope that history and literature get expanded to be more inclusive of of the multiple peoples that make up our society. The difference between what we see and, you know, we firmly believe most Americans think of when they hear ethnic studies is just that. I I highly doubt most people would say, no, no, why should we hear about, you know, and learn about, have our kids learn about Chinese American history? You know, most people wouldn't, wouldn't agree with that. They would say, of course, you know, Chinese Americans are part of the fabric of our country. We should have our kids learn about those stories in in that history. Radical ethnic studies or critical or liberated ethnic studies is exclusionary. So it's, it's a form, it's a pedagogy that believes that there's a binary between the oppressed and the oppressor. And based on that binary, we need to ignore and shun certain histories and stories and narratives in favor of others, which seems to be counter to to what um, inclusion would mean. Um, yeah. It's it's much more ideologically narrow. Uh, some some critical liberated ethnic studies activists um, are really closely aligned with neo Marxist thought, and so their critique isn't just against the teaching, as they call it, Eurocentric history, but it's against other things like um, the nuclear family, property ownership, capitalism, 
um, a, lot, a lot of other uh, liberal thinking, diversity of thought, a lot of other things that I think we kind of take for granted growing up in a in a classically liberal nation. Yeah, and I, you know, I'm um, I'm 31, so this kind of the politicize politicize politicization of the classroom and these debates that are happening they weren't as as hot when i was in school cuz that's been now when i was in high school cuz that's been over 10 years now but it was the creep has been happening for a long time and i think parents just aren't aren't aware or don't know how to be aware i'm just going to briefly tell a quick story i took ap us history in high school with a wonderful teacher that i I actually adored and and was one of my favorite teachers. However, one of the main history books that we used, I think we had two, we had kind of like a general history book. And then we had Howard's in a people's history of the United States. And I came home one day and I was talking about how awful Christopher Columbus was, because that's what we were reading about in Howard's in's book. And um, not to say Christopher Columbus was perfect or a saint by any stretch, but I do believe now I've come to believe that, you know, his history is a lot more nuanced than I was being taught in high school. However, I came home and I was talking about that. And my mom just kind of said, where are you getting that from? Like, what, what, I'm not sure I've heard some of these stories before. And my mom's like a pretty sharp person. And so I showed her the book and she was looking through it and she was like, is this the only book that you guys are reading about this kind of stuff? And I said, yeah, it's like our main, our main book. And so then she started kind of countering at home Mm -hmm. some of the things that were in that book, but I don't believe most parents would pick up on that. Or even if they did would then have the wherewithal to kind of be countering some of those narratives at home. And that was her thing. She's like, I don't care if you're reading Howard's in, but I want you to have the other perspective as well. Like you've been talking about, you know, you gotta have balance. Is that the thing that really needs to be happening with, with parents that they just need to be paying more attention to what's going on. And if more parents did pay attention, then the coalition would grow and grow and grow. Or at this point, are most parents kind of aware of what's going on and they either do or don't take action. What's kind of your take on this? I think that, um, zoom school during COVID school closures really, um, really led to a lot of parents becoming much, much more aware of what was going on in their kids' classrooms. And after that, we actually saw, I think we saw kind of a groundswell of parents uh, starting to attend school board meetings, starting to ask questions, starting to request uh, curricula from their schools. That being said, our kid, we send our kids to school so that the school, the people in, at, at school teach them certain things, give them opportunities to express curiosity, to ask questions, and and that our kids are presented with factual information. So to expect us to send our kids to school for, you know, upwards of seven hours a day, and then our kids come home and we do the exact same thing at at home is a little bit ridiculous. If that's the case, then we should all homeschool. Right. Which isn't, you know, which we've seen a lot of parents choose to do because of um, a lot of the failure, the things that they saw as failures happening in public schools and, and, and so forth. Now, are parents, do parents have the time to work full-time jobs, take care of siblings, some care for parents, some be spouses, some, you know, maintain their own professions and, and the rest of that, while also taking over the role of kind of full-time counter teacher to what our kids are learning in public school? No. Do, I, what, I, what I hope more parents become more aware of what what's actually happening in their kids' classrooms, of course. 
asking for everyone to, okay, now drop everything and jump on board and let's fix it is asking, ask, asking a lot. Yeah. But, but I do think it's super important that we're aware of what our kids are learning in school, just like I'm, I'm older than you. I remember the, the commercials and everything from dare and from everything about peer pressure in the eighties and in the nineties and how do you know, do you know where your kids are and all of the rest of that. It's, it's similar. Only the questions need to be asked are, do you know what your te- your kids teachers telling them in the classroom? Oh yeah. That's actually such a good point. That would be some interesting PSAs that <laughs> go out. Do you know what your kids being taught in the public school? <laughs> That's really um, interesting and a good comparison. So if a parent is listening to this and they're like, my goodness, I don't know what my kid is really being taught. Um, I just assumed that they're being taught arithmetic and basic history or whatever. What can they do to sort of, is it just, let me see your homework. Is it asking specific deeper questions during a parent teacher conference? Like how do parents sort of act as detective to figure these things out, to just be confident that they do know what their child is being taught. All of what you said, because a lot of what comes out is actually in the assignments and homework. It's like what your mom asked you about the textbook. Is this the only book that you're you're learning from? It's knowing it's it's raising questions um, at parent teacher conferences and al- also showing up. I think and asking questions of the school board and of of the um, educators, the kid, the person who's in the classroom with your kid most of the day. I think all of that is is part of it. And yeah, seeing what work gets assigned, what questions are asked, and what the goals of of those assignments are. Are the goal, you know, you think about when, you know, when you were in school and your teacher gave you an assignment, there was a goal that that she or he wanted. They wanted you to learn something. What was the learning outcome that they desired? And if it's math, is it mastery of this set of math facts? If it's social studies, what's what's the learning outcome that the school is expecting kids to walk away from with? Yeah. It's so, I mean, how is it that, and maybe you don't know the answer to this, but you know, I'm seeing all the time now headlines about the abysmal reading, like kids don't even know how to read. They don't know how to do basic math. Like they're failing all the standardized tests and that parents don't know, like, because their kids are keep passing, they, you know, their kids aren't being held back. So their kids just keep moving through the grades. And somehow the parents don't know that their kids don't know how to read or do simple arithmetic or whatever. Is, is some of that sensationalized in the news? Or I don't understand how you cannot realize that your 13 year old doesn't know how to read. You got- I mean, I think that the low, the low standard, and low bars becoming normalized. I wish it were sensationalized. I think that it, we are going to unfortunately see the consequences of having generations of kids who can't perform basic um, language arts and basic math at grade level. We're going to see the, there, there will be consequences of that in a decade of seeing, okay, who's going to be building our roads? Um, who's going to be making sure our, our infrastructure is sound? Who's going to be building our airplanes that we travel right. on or our railroads? All of that stuff is important. You can, and, and this isn't just something that impacts people that go on to college and university. If you call somebody because you have a leak and you call the plumber, they need to know what they're doing. That yeah. requires certain skills that kids should learn in K-12 school. And I think lowering the bar and lowering the standards may ma- be making the math look good, kind of. You know, okay, the numbers look a little bit better for a school. But the results aren't any better. And to, yeah. to think that funding and resources have been spent, I mean, millions of dollars have been spent over arguments about CRT 
and ethnic studies. And we have students who can't perform math at grade level. Majority of students in certain cases who can't perform math at grade level. Does, do we need to, because some people have said maybe we shouldn't, like ethnic studies and that stuff just needs to be put on pause. Like we need to focus on the basics right now. You know, like our kids don't know how to read. So let's teach them how to read. Let's teach them how to do math. And then we'll start thinking about ethnic studies and kind of like the extra stuff. What would you say to that? Do you think there's a point to that or like kind of in stages or? I don't think that that's necessary. I think if I were to choose, if that was the, if that's the choice, you know, teach the basics or teach this ideology that kind of has nothing to do with historical reality, I would choose teach the basics, but I don't think we have to make that choice. The books that our kids read in school can be diversified. Their mm-hmm. social for language arts, their social studies um, stories and lessons can be diversified where they're getting a bigger and more clearer and actually more realistic version of United States history and the communities that, that they live in without sacrificing kids learning basic math and, and basic language arts. So will the coalition be working towards kind of making curriculum recommendations or is it more just like empowering parents and community organizations to handle it themselves, you know, come up with the solutions locally? No, both. We will, we are definitely working on, on learning materials, teaching materials and advocacy materials. I think that they're all, they're all needed. And we, there are a lot of organizations that have built, built up their resources that parents and and educators can have uh, access to now. Okay. And then I have to ask you, since this is kind of like, well, it's kind of faded out of the news a little bit now, but what were your thoughts on the whole debate around the Florida African-American history. Do you think um, that it was that it was racist, that it was too soft handed, you know, the, the way that they talked about slavery, that it was factually incorrect, that it was good? What what did you think? Or were you just kind of like, as long as parents are influencing it, it's OK? What, what kind of what's the line there? No, I think it's important that that not only parents, but experts in, are influencing something. History is a professional field. Historians are professionals. And to I think that that argument that happened in Florida, the couple of them over the past few months around education, became partisan really, really quickly. Um, yeah, I'm setting that that part aside. The statement or the I don't remember if it was a standard what it said in the if I'm thinking of the right the same one you're thinking about where it talked about slaves gained certain skills that they right. then used upon emancipation. Yep. Mm-hmm. yep, that's what I'm um, referring to. Yeah, so. While that is factually correct, some people who were enslaved did use the skills that they were forced to use um, under uh, while in bondage when they were emancipated. However, that's not a justification for the system of slavery. Right, right. Did you feel like the curriculum did just like that's what they were doing? They were justifying slavery or maybe you didn't look into it deep enough to. I No, to I looked it. into it. I did. Okay. I didn't come away with that. In any way, that doesn't mean I, I, I'm not going to guess the intention of whoever put that in, but that is not what I walked away with, especially because almost word for word, that same standard or, or, or um, objective was in the AP African American studies class that everyone was so loud about supporting and came down really hard on Governor DeSantis for sending it back for revision that same standard was in there and no one said a word about it. Everyone was fine with it. 
Yeah. Yeah. That was a big point for me too. I was like, well, this is, we don't seem to be holding everything up to the same consistent standard. So yeah, that was something that I brought up again and again when I was talking to people too. Like, why didn't you have a problem with it when it was in this other curriculum? Of course, many people just didn't know it was in the other curriculum because they just go along to <laughs> get along and they just sort of, unfortunately, a lot of people are kind of sheepish. And so they get mad when they're told to get mad and celebrate when they're told to celebrate. Uh, but yeah, in my- I, I will I will say one other thing on that. I understand um, I understand the caution of having that that in there because there have been when my mom was in high school, she was told the happy slave narrative. So mm-hmm. I see that that okay, it could be used for you know to to kind of portray well, slavery wasn't that bad because I understand that caution. I just think the outrage was was overblown. Yeah, yeah. I think that's probably true. And that that whole situation led to a kind of a debate that I had with my own father in the home about how much power local communities should have. I'm a, like, let the local communities do do everything. I'm very, you know, federalism is the way, right? That's That's how I feel personally. But, you know, obviously, if there's a local community, let's say it's a county that's just teaching straight up incorrect history then maybe the governor needs to step in or whoever. So I was a lot more liberal than my dad was on the the power that local communities all the way down to the to the city, right, should have over creating their own curriculum and he was he, he things got things got more heated than I expected them to actually with this what I thought would be kind of a silly little conversation. Anyways, do you have and it's I know it's nuanced, but do you have a line that can't be crossed or like an idea of how much power those local communities should have to, you know, tailor their curriculum to whatever's going on locally with their local history and the perspective and point of view of the people that live in that community. Yeah, I think that there should be a basic standard across the board. I I think that if we don't have a state and national standard for learning, you're going to have kids that are subject to the whim of whoever's been elected into office at that moment. And I don't think that's fair. I don't think kids should be denied an opportunity of a baseline education because of that in favor of local control over everything. That being said, that doesn't mean I think it should be a top-down kind of here, you have to do this and do that. And, And partially for me, that comes from living in multiple different states as part of military family and seeing that, well, there's a lot of rich local history here that kids should have access to learning that if it, you know, if the standard curricula just came from the top down, it wouldn't necessarily give them access and opportunity to learn those things. But I, I look at it kind of like OSHA, you know, Mm -hmm. there's a federal national OSHA standard and some, and some States can go above and beyond, but you can't go below it. That makes a lot of sense. Um, Something else that I saw on the website is, and, and people say this all the time that a lot of the curriculum and ideology and stuff that's taught in the schools is anti-West. What is being anti-West and why is that a bad thing? That's a very interesting question. So how it's been presented in uh, critical liberated ethnic studies is everything that's considered Western has been, is attributed to white Europeans. And so they're the opposite. Their, their stance is to take, um, the position of the global South and put overtake then what they view as something that's like Eurocentric, Western and white. That is an issue for me for multiple reasons. I'll just touch on a few. One, what they're, what 
you know, the critical liberated activists say, the position they take is actually, in my opinion, very bigoted. It erases all of the contributions of non-white people, non-European people to ideas like democracy and freedom of speech and literacy and everything else. It takes a very bigoted view that anyone whose ancestors are from the global South in no way, shape or form contributed to all of these things they label as, as Western. And so if they, if they just paint all of these things as Western and white Eurocentric, it's easy for them to take a position against it. But in doing that, they have to ignore everyone else who actually contributed to those things. That's my, my first um, big issue with it. And what would I say that they're anti-Western slightly because they're anti things that we think of like the Western, like free, freedom of speech and democracy and freedom of, of religious practice. And they embrace things that are like Marxism and socialism and communism and things they see as communal. communal. Again, in doing that, they ignore that those things also originated out of, quote unquote, the West. So the ideas of Marxism and communism came out of you know what's now the United Kingdom and went east to Eastern Europe. Those aren't ideas that came out of the global South from non-European peoples. So it, it's just this weird idea to me. Their ideology is strange and it contradicts itself over and over and over again if anyone you know, scratches just slightly below the surface. And then so when you point out you know, people that have contributed to the West in a variety of ways that aren't European, don't have a European background or history, ethnically or otherwise, and then do they usually just come and say, well, they're, they're acting, they're, they're acting white or white presenting or whatever. What's usually the pushback or the explanation for that? It's, it is that this is one of the dangers of, of um, school districts and schools and, and spaces of learning, adopting the teaching of what's called the four eyes of oppression. And I'll only speak, speak to one. So if you don't agree that all of these things have been oppressive and bad, it's one of the four eyes of oppression, internalized oppression. So you have internalized white supremacy. It can't be for any other reason. It can't be you hold a different view. It can't be that you have completely different set of facts that contradict that ideology. It's all summed up and, and put down to internalized oppression. So yeah, that, 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 okay, I have internalized white supremacy because I point out factors like well, this person also contributed to the ideas of liberty and democracy, and this person does not come from a white European background. In fact, they didn't even have contact with white Europeans. That's just an idea that sprung up naturally from another part of the globe and another society. That all gets ignored and everything is summed up as as internalized oppression. And that's kind of an unfalsifiable claim, right? Like who can... Nobody knows what's going on internally with me except me. So, and I, and I've seen people who, um, you know, parents and even people, even friends of mine that don't have kids and kids yet who are so scared to say anything. Um, mm-hmm. they kind of let other people do the talking because they don't want to get accused of things. And that internalized, the, the accusation of internalizing something is one that really gets people like caught on their heels. People will just like a deer in the headlights when they're accused of that. Do you have any tactics or recommendations for someone if they get accused of that, how to address it? I mean, I only know how I address it. And I, honestly, I, I I take it from, you know, words that my kids have said when somebody says something ridiculous like that. It's just I've been called worse. Like I don't, 
I'm not going to the there's I acknowledge I have a level of protection. I work in a space that I'm not going to get canceled. I'm not going to get fired because I, I express a different view point of view. That's kind of everything that the organizations I work for and with stand stand for. But I think that self-censoring is really dangerous. And we're at a point now that because of all of this ideology acting kind of like this oppressive force against us, lack of a better term, people are self-censoring. No one else has to do it anymore because people are scared of being called racist or white supremacist, or they are being labeled as having internal internalized oppression that, okay, I'm just not going to say anything. And that's dangerous. Yeah, I agree. And I actually remember we met at the conference, what was it like a year, a year and a half ago. And you said, you dropped that line. Like I've been called worse. And I remember that. I remember you saying it. And I was just like, Ooh, that's like a core (laughs) memory for me. And I've always kept that in my back pocket too. So I've actually used it. So even though it's like a simple, it's, it's a, it's a simple comeback. Right. But I had never really thought of it or used it before. But so thank you for that. And I'm glad you shared that here. Speaking of your kids, what's, I think your kids are like, they're younger than me. So was this, were you having to navigate this personally with your own children as they were coming up? How how did you like personally as a parent sort of tackle these things? Not with my oldest two. My husband and I had two kids and decided to take a 10 year break and we have two more. So our our oldest two, it wasn't really a thing when they were in K-12 school and they moved around. They had the kind of Navy brat experience a lot, a lot more than our, our youngest two who are now in middle school, first year middle school, first year of high school, uh, just started just yesterday. The thing, I don't think we have to navigate it as much with them. They're also in a private Jewish day school. So the environment is a little bit different. It's smaller. It's not as reliant on on the institutions that are pushing this narrow ideology. Uh, So we're not having to experience it with them as, as much. Not to say that it hasn't tried to sneak in in certain ways, because where I've found it as a, in my research is that a lot of this ideology is coming out of teachers' colleges. And so even teachers at private schools or charter schools go to teachers' colleges. Right. So it still comes in, but it's not, not the, nearly the same as in a lot of public schools. And do you have an easier time in kind of rallying parents if you see an issue or just even having a conversation with another parent given the type of schools that your children go to? Or has that even not even, you've never even really had to go there? It hasn't hasn't happened. I think that there has been one conversation I had with the head of the school who's open and willing to discussion is there's no like shutting down parents and no, we don't talk about that. I haven't had that experience. Thank goodness. Yeah. Awesome. That's great to hear. It's wonderful to hear because you hear so many horror stories. It's nice to hear about some light um, in all of this. I, I'm going to pivot a little bit because I have to ask you, you just brought up that your children go to go to Jewish day school. You are a black Jewish American woman, which is heterodox in and of itself. Um, and uh, I happen to be involved with the Institute for Black Solidarity with Israel. And so I'm very interested in this topic. I know that's not really what we're here to talk about, but I want to ask you about a piece you wrote for the Times of Israel, the intersectionality of anti-blackness and anti-Semitism which I loved. So thank you for writing that. And, you know, I think most of the listeners know I am not Jewish. However, this is just an issue and and a a talking point that I'm interested in. And I do consider myself very pro-Israel. So you have a line in there where you talk about how, you know, political liberals cannot understand how a black woman can be a Zionist. And some Zionists do not comprehend, comprehend how a proud Jewish woman can be politically liberal. But you've 
you say, I've tried to explain that the belief in a nation of people's right to self-determination in their indigenous homeland is a liberal belief. I love that line. It's great. Why do people think it's not a liberal belief? Because to me, I mean, you and I are pretty aligned, I think, on a lot of these things. I read something like that and I'm like, yeah, that's obviously true. But can you expound upon that thought a little bit? And when you're having these conversations, how you really like drive it home and paint a picture, maybe it's that people do not define. People are defining liberal as being leftist, maybe, or or something like that. I'm not sure. When you're having these conversations, how do you address it? Partially that what you just said, there's a distinction, I guess, now that hasn't always existed between progressive, liberal, now leftist, whatever, whatever, whatever term one wants to use. But I think it's difficult for people to understand Zionism as a liberal value, because people, um, there's been this false narrative that Zionism is settler colonialism. And that comes from historical erasure. And, you know, I'm a bit of a history nerd. There's been this very strong, active attempt to erase Jewish indigeneity from the land of Israel. So people on the far left will rally for everyone else's indigenous rights um, with land acknowledgments and the like, except for Jews, Mm -hmm. and instead take the side of the descendants of people who came to the land of Israel as settler colonialists, which is... uh, you know, fascinating concept, just historically, that that's the narrative that's that's being pushed out there by certain segments of the population. And unfortunately, by a, a large segment of people who, who portray themselves as scholars. And if we just want to get back down to, you know, again, my nerdy world of history and anthropology and archaeology, it's very clear who, what people are indigenous to the land and what people aren't. That doesn't mean that I don't think that just, you know, I would never call for the expulsion of all peoples that aren't Native American in the United States. I'm not calling for the expulsion of all peoples who aren't indigenous in the land of Israel. I'm not Israeli. That's for that those people, voters and government to figure out. And thank God it's a democracy, so that can happen. The only democracy in the region that that can happen. So I, I, I take issue with it because, again, I'm a bit of a history nerd. I take issue with false history being portrayed, especially in classrooms, as as something real. And unfortunately, Israel is just not something that's really you at least that I know of is not really focused on at all, which is understandable. We you, you focus on American history when you're in, you know, public American school. Um, and you hit on other countries really only when wars come up. <laughs> and um, you know, obviously some a little bit more heavy-handed on on British history because you know it directly influences our history. And Israel, you know, they're not a big player in any of you know when you're studying World War One or whatever, except as a as a result of World War Two, right? And something that came kind of after the fact, the way that Israel works today. Anyways, all that to say, I th- I feel like the only history when it comes to Israel, the only talking points that people get are those false narratives that you're, you're touching on. And really you don't start to hear about it till you're in college. At least that's, that's been my experience. And like the colleges have seemed to be taken over by anti-Semitism. Am I correct in that? Partially, unfortunately, we're seeing it now in, in ethnic studies. We're the only country outside of the United States that's being centered is, uh, is Israel and in, in forms of curricula that's been, a curriculum that's been formed called Teach Palestine. And it's based completely on false history and actually lies about current events. So we are seeing it come into K-12. 
um, in a very heavy handed mm. way uh, under the Trojan horse of, of ethnic studies. Wow. Yeah, that's really interesting because I never hardly heard the word Israel when I was <laughs> when I was a kid. Yeah, like it barely was something I knew at all because I actually I'm a Christian now, but I wasn't a believer. I wasn't raised in a Christian home or anything. So even from like a biblical lens, a Christian lens, I didn't really know anything about Israel. And then as I've moved along and I've learned more and it's like you said, it's very fascinating, like this dynamic of we're all about indigenous people and their land rights and acknowledgments and all that kind of stuff, except for Israel, when the the evidence is very clear, like you said, of who, who the indigenous people of Israel are. Um, and when people ask me, and you know, I'm a lot more newer to this space, kind of the, the, the pro-Israel space. Um, when people ask me, why is that? Like, why is there this weird dynamic? Because they're almost wondering if I'm not telling them something because it sounds so strange. Like, what what am I missing here? And really, now that I am more, I am a religious person, I am a believer, I kind of just point to the word. I'm like, God told us that the Jews weren't going to have it easy, <laughs> that it's going to be a struggle. And that's, you know, and this is part of that struggle, for better or for worse, for whatever reason, I can't, I don't really know fully why, except that they're God's people and the world hates, hates God. Is that a bad answer? I know it may not, you know, touch the hearts of people who aren't believers, but what what's your approach to addressing that weird phenomenon? I think it depends who the audience is. You know, when you're speaking with um, a religious audience, then that may may be a, a good explanation for people to understand. Um, I I like to point out the idea that here, at least in the United States, people seem very American centric and mm-hmm. wanting to place what happened here all over the world without acknowledging that the United States of America is an exception. And I don't mean whether, you know, this is a different argument, and I'm, I'm not saying that we're not, but I don't mean exception, like exceptional, the best at everything and everything. I mean, an exception in the way we formed and how diverse our population is, et cetera, et cetera. We're an exception. So applying an American centric lens on other places around the world, it, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. We are an exception to other places that are older, have different traditions and formed, um, you know, their borders and their cultures and traditions very, very differently than we did. And I think that when we look at the conversation about Israel, it's color based. That mm-hmm. There's this idea that that Jews are white and are European and went to Israel and conquered it from brown people when anyone who's ever went went to Israel who isn't an Israeli would you know, have a really hard time making a distinction between somebody who's an Israeli Jew, who's um, an Arab, who's Druze, and who's something else, because it's not it, the differences in culture and in na- nationhood isn't visible there the same way it is um, here. Yeah, yeah, great. Okay, so we're getting close to an hour here. I think it is time for the speed round of questions. It's 10 questions. There's no real right or wrong answer. They're just kind of for fun. Um, ask, answer them as quickly as you can. And then after that, you'll get the stage back to kind of give your final thoughts, anything you want the, the listeners to hear from you before we sign off. Does that sound good? Are you ready? Perfect. Okay. What is the best part of waking up? Just that, waking up. <laughs> what is the tastiest type of cheese? Gruyere. I'm mis- mispronouncing it. <laughs> The Black Panther or Blade? The first Black Panther. Is kneeling during the national anthem an appropriate form of protest? Yes. 
Is the word Negro a slur? Not in Spanish. Black History Month, yay or nay? A. <laughs> what is your hottest take? That's going to be not a lightning round. I have no idea. Okay, we'll skip it. What is the okay. best part of being Black? Everything. Is Rachel Dolezal a bad person or misunderstood? No comment. <laughs> Should we tear down statues of slaveholders? Some of them. That's it. That's your 10 questions. You got through it pretty quick. And that's that's a win because some people... Yeah, the, the speed round is not the speed round. So <laughs> thank you for answering those quickly. What are your final thoughts, things that you want to leave, resources you want to drop, anything you want to plug before we sign off here? So, I mean, I would like people to to visit co the, our website for the co uh, Coalition for Empowered Education. I think it's important to stay informed and to, you know, kind of resist the urge to self-censor, to engage in not just dialogue, but debate. I think that free speech is is what an open discourse are two of the foundational things that we cannot lose in our democratic republic, or we risk losing having a democratic republic. And it's a rare and and blessed thing that we have here. And I think that um, it it's up to the people to maintain it. Exactly. Yep. Brandy, you're so well-spoken and so eloquent and so smart. We're so glad to have you on the show and just that you're a, an ally and friend of Free Black Thought. Thank you so much for all the work that you do. Thank you. Thanks, Con. The number you have dialed. You're listening to the Free Black Thought Podcast. Free Black Thought.